Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. We want to discover what makes creative people tick. Join us as we explore what it means to be a writer, and more importantly, what it means to be a person. Remember why you love music, and welcome to Pitch List. You might know her from the voice alongside her moms in the theme song of the popular TV show Gilmore Girls, or maybe you've heard of one of her 10 studio albums, or heard of a podcast called Song Chronicles. Either way, this week's guest is no newcomer to the music business. Louise Goffin played her first gig at the age of 17, opening for, can you get this, Jackson Brown and has been recording, writing, and producing for most of her life. She even recently completed a six-month audio engineering course at the legendary Blackbird Academy and plans to release yet another new album this year called Two Different Movies. Music is absolutely in her blood. Please welcome the captivating Louise Goffin. Good morning. How you doing? I'm good, Chris. We have a really, really cool guest today. Louise Goffin is in here to talk to us. She's got uh, some great stories, fantastic artist. I think you're really going to dig uh, meeting her. I know I am. Um, now, are you, you're in town, uh, you live in L.A., right? I live in L.A. currently and come to Nashville for extended times. Okay, so you, now, and you come here and write sometimes? Or I you, come here and write, and I'm doing other things, too. I mean, I, I also have launched my own podcast where I'm producer and host, and I'm doing some interviews and making some videos and playing some shows. That's awesome. Yeah. When I was 11, my sister and I were on tour with my mother and James Taylor because it was the summertime, and we were in Scotland, and Joni Mitchell showed up. I guess she and James were together at the time, and she was sketching, and in the in backstage, I guess it was a locker room, she sketched a picture of me. Um, she did one of my sister too, and she handed them to us. She gave them to us. She signed the back, Joan Mitchell. Wow. And I've had it for years, and this is my 10th album, and I, I thought, this should be my album cover. And I didn't want to just take a Joni Mitchell picture and have it be my album cover. I wanted her blessing. Um, so I got in touch with her people and said, I've had this for years, and it was given to me, you know, as a gift. However, I'd really like to use it for my record cover, but I want Joni's blessings. And I just, you know, said, the the person said, give me a minute. And then about three days later, I got an email saying, Joni thinks it'll make a great album cover. So I was just elated, pinching myself, <laughs> jumping up and down. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that, that is the record you're about to release. Yes, that's, and that's the record. two different movies. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's certain things in my history that really shape the way I go about songwriting. And, and there are people who gave me permission to break the structured rules, you know, Paul McCartney, uh, Brian Wilson, Joni Mitchell, uh, 
my mother, for her intuitiveness, um, she's way more musically analytical than I am. You know, she mm-hmm. will look at a song from a point of view of, oh, well, here's the bridge and it, it, it should go up to, you know, the, right. the minor third or this is an augmented chord. And that's beyond my thinking when I'm writing. She can do it. Um, but what I did get from her and my father is they had a emotional intuitiveness about their writing um, where the emotions and the message steered the melody, steered the song. And it, it's, it's something that unseasoned writers, you know, they just long to get into that place because they, they think a lot about what they want the result of the song to be. Mm-hmm. And in order to write, I think you have to acknowledge that the song is more intelligent than you and, and, you know, what sur- a great point. surrender yep. to being led somewhere better than you thought it could go. Yes. Yeah. So well said, you know, and this is a songwriting podcast. We should dig into this more because you have had, uh, education and just education from being around some mm-hmm. of the greatest writers of our mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. And um, you're a great writer yourself. I want to talk to you more about that. Um, I love what you just said. Um, there's an old thing I heard one time about wanting to write or having want, or wanting to have written. <laughs> well, I always want to have written because writing sometimes is just like, oh, it's so much work, but I love to have written. Yeah, but yeah. I get... But I love what you said about the intelligence of the song and letting that experience, because I've interviewed a lot of songwriters, and I'm one myself, and this comes up a lot, uh, this idea of letting it, letting it happen. Like letting it, like you don't have to try, don't just sit there, pull your hammers out and beat the song over and over. It, just let it do its thing. It, it will reveal itself. To, to my thinking, I'm asking, it already has its own life, and we just kind of give it a place to come into the world. Yeah, it's that quote talking about songwriting is like dancing about architecture. Yeah. It's um it is probably the most meditative thing I do because yeah, it's it's about listening. Mm-hmm. Songwriting is about listening. And if you are there's nothing more frustrating than being in a room full of co-writers who won't be quiet because you can't actually hear what the song needs. Yes. I say that too. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a writer a long time ago tell me he had a technique where he would get quiet when he's working on a song and he would imagine that the song that he's going to write is playing on a radio really far away and he can barely hear it. That's a great image. Isn't that I, great? I love that. And he that. said, and so he's, and then he would get quiet and strain to hear it. Yeah. And it's like, I can almost hear what it's, and then, and listen for it. And then he could sort of birth it that way. I, I've always loved that. Yeah. Um, and it always ends up some spiritual thing and, you know, which is not the nuts and bolts of songwriting, but it is, but I do think it's a spiritual thing. It's an important thing. I mean, on so many levels, it's important in that moment of creation. And then it's important afterwards. I was in, you know, 
I was in Trader Joe's the other day listening to all this music that sounded like it was probably 80s bands. And I th was thinking as I was shopping, wow, this band put a lot of energy into making this recording, playing it live, getting it to sound this way, promoting it, you know, marketing it. They put their sweat into this. And now I'm hearing it in the background while I'm like picking up a, a bag of pecans. Yeah. And I wonder if they're seeing any money at all from this being played in here right now. And, and people will argue, yes, they are, you know, I'm sure they are. But the way that songs are devalued in our culture, um, it's really, it's really upsetting to me because music enhances people's businesses. It enhances, yeah. like, you know, what yes. would the shopping experience be without the music being I played? know. I had a what BMI would, guy tell me that too. I loved it. He's like, if because some restaurants were not wanting to pay their license and then yeah. he's like okay well sell your italian dinner at seven o'clock and shut the music off How, how's that going to go so we are helping sell your products I, I i hear what you're saying it it's like yeah see how long people stay in the restaurant when you make your italian dinner and the music is turned off right you know but the problem we have is that there's so much demand to be heard that nobody's going to say, well, you can't have my music. You know, there's always someone who will give the music for free. I mean, I, I practically give my music. I, I always say as an artist, I should make myself a 501c3 because it, it's definitely been putting out more money just, right. you know, to spread the music, it's it's become a pay-to-play culture to go do a show. Yeah. Maybe you'll break even. Right. So you're kind of advertising for your live performance. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, I, and I'm not complaining. It's the best life ever. It's, you know, I'm grateful every day that I get to do what I do for a living and then I'm able to do it and whatever other means I find of bringing money in to help support making records that don't seem to pay for themselves. I am grateful every day to be able to do that. But it is something notable to me that music, I mean, think of what life would be like without music. We would be living in just, it would just be so boring and bland. Yeah, it would. And, and it enhances every single thing that we do. Yeah. Our, our car ride, our, you know, the, the films and TV shows we watch. I mean, and I'm not saying this in a way like nobody's getting paid because I talk to a lot of people who are making a lot of money and they're making a lot of money streaming. And it seems to be that some people get their lives together and their teams together and they figure out how to do that. But there are great, many people who don't know how to keep up with the income streams right. or collecting them. And I've gone off on a total tangent That's okay, here. because I think it's an important one. I think uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast, but it, it's a difficult thing because I, when I hear you talk, I, I, comp I know that you're sharing your music. This is what you, this is who you are and this is what you do. And um, it's just unfortunate that, it can't be structured in a business way that that it makes it more difficult for you to do it. Not that it's 
Let me put it another way. I feel you. I get it. Well, it's it's not totally a complaint. It's really more of an awareness. And the other thing I want to say is I was signed to major record companies and I had lots of support and they generously gave me marketing funds and funds to make a record and go and play radio stations and, you know, help underwrite some shows, showcases. And, and, and I had, I had a bunch of that at the beginning of my career and, and, and several times over, you know, times when I'd lost deals and then I'd get another one and I'd go, whoa, how'd that happen? And then I'd lose that deal. And then I get another one and I'd be, man, I thought it would be over by now, but you know, here I am again. And I felt very fortunate. But what I will say is I'm having so much more fun now. It is so, like, it's just, it it's a completely different landscape. Is it because you can really do, because you're free? Often in a big deal, you've got a lot of voices coming and talking to you about what you need to do, what kind of song you need, how to market. There was and a little you- bit of that. I was very lucky. I mean, I was particularly lucky when I was at DreamWorks with Lenny Warrenkirk because I'd made a record ahead of time and uh, with Greg Wells and Lenny heard the record and he was like, I want to sign that and don't change anything. Like oh, how great. often do you hear that? But, not, not often. <laughs> um, Never. Yeah. So, uh, and I do think like with Billie Eilish, I think the key when you're going to a major company, when you're dealing with a major organization with a lot of, uh, a lot of people mm. all having to coordinate a strategy. The only way to do that with any kind of safety and smarts is to really define your record, right. your sound, your image, and everything before mm. you walk in the door. You bring that in and sit that on the table, and then you say, okay, what do we do with this? Yeah, and that that was something that I learned the hard way when I started because I was just focused on the music and then, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about myself yet. And, you know, I experimented with, well, if I wear this or, I, you know, and I, it was a stage where I wanted to be all glamorous, you know, which mm-hmm. it gave a, a different message than really was who I was. And then there was a stage when, you know, I was constantly recording at home for years, for decades. I mean, on every single possible thing I could record on either a porta studio or a, you know, a half inch eight track in my living room. I mean, I was just constantly, I was constantly like Paul McCartney on his first solo record, write a song recorded, <laughs> you know, write a song recorded, play all the instruments. And I'd make these really quirky, imperfect, cool sounding demos. And then when I went into the record company, they'd sit around and figure out who, you know, what hit producers should produce me. And I'd make this kind of smooth, slick record that yeah. didn't have any of the the cool, you know. Right. It didn't have my fingerprints on it anymore. And I lost a, a lot of that in the releases. And then I would be glamorous in the photos. And, you know, so I kind of disappeared behind the machine. Mm-hmm. And um, if I was doing it today and I was going to go that route, I would... Have it all to I do what Billie Eilish and her brother did. I yeah. have it all together and go in with 
this is who we are. And this be, is our record. Right. And be bulletproof. Like, yeah. this is our record. If you don't want to market this record right here as is, yeah. then we're not we're not a good fit. Like, and I, because Billie Eilish to me is a great example. I think she's fascinating because she has like a teen idol status, right? But she is a no compromise true artist. And I don't know that we've ever had that before. Well, we've had Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift is that. Taylor Swift is that. Yeah. I guess she is. She is. Taylor Swift I, you is. You know, I love Taylor Swift. I'm a Swifty. I'm a Swifty from way back. <laughs> she was the same way. She is the same way. She yeah. knows what she's doing and no one's telling her what to record or how to record it. It's her deal. Yes. Well, so this is a thing where it comes, you know, this is true for life. It's not just true for record companies, but, you know, especially if you're walking into a situation where there's commerce and money involved, you have to be rock solid in knowing who you are and you have to stand by that, you know, and, and, and also not be an asshole and be impossible to talk to right. and negotiate with. But, um, yeah, you got to have a good head on your shoulders and um it, you know some people some people are there at 17 mm-hmm. and some people don't get there till much later yeah I, I love what you're saying you do have to know who you are and it has to be right for it to really work that's what really works when when an artist knows who they are and it's working yeah. and what i mean it's like it's really working it emotionally connects when you hear it you're like yeah man that is so cool and the point about Billie Eilish is she came in doing stuff that's very different, you know, from what's happening now. And in so many ways, but it was so right. It was so right on that it didn't it didn't matter, you know, yeah. and that it is a great lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, I love what you're saying. I think it's great advice for artists. You can always tell when you work with them as a, and I'm sure you have too as a co-writer. You get in the do you co-write some or do you not? I co-write some. Okay. I, I'm you know what? It's been happening to me is just that when I make a record, there's so much to do in order to play live, promote the record, make the videos, the content, all of that, that I feel like <laughs> just when I'm most inspired to go make another record, I, I have to, you know, yeah. birth this record to yeah. the world. Um, so lately I haven't been doing as much writing, although I've, I've definitely had the urge and ideas constantly writing little ideas on my phone for the next thing I want to do. But yeah, I, I find all that to be true. And, and lately it's not about just a song and a record anymore. For me, unless you're working with the artist who's going to record the song and is going to make a record, writing songs to write songs, it, it, it's really time consuming it's to write a, a song. It's exhausting. And I have so many songs yes. that I even forget about that are sitting in a Dropbox folder. And sometimes they're great. You know? Oh, no. I, yes, you're preaching to the choir now because <laughs> um, I've, I've, I've got a lot of songs. I really don't need, I don't need any more songs. I need special songs. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get on. I've got a couple other things because I'm really excited that you're here. So one of the things, um, you had two songwriters as parents. You grew up in a songwriting house. And I'm just curious to ask you because my kids are growing up in a songwriter house. Now, Amy and I are clearly not at the level of your parents of in the songwriting world, but 
what do you think about that childhood was different uh, than a lot of people's? And what surprising thing about it? Where, what, what, do you, what could you tell us about that that you think would be interesting? I think I have to write a book. I think yeah, that I think event- you do. eventually I have to write a book. Um, yeah. It, well, first of all, both of my parents were brilliant in their own ways. My mother, she's just one of those people who learns things really quickly and like takes to things really quickly, you know, very study studious. So, you know, there's a thing in the play beautiful, the, the Carol King musical where, um, it, she, she claims to know how to orchestrate a song for the Shirelles. They said, well, do you know how to orchestrate? She goes, yeah, I can do that. And they go, great. If you could give us that elegant sound then we'll cut it. And then, you know, the mm-hmm. Shirelles leave the stage and the, the actor playing my father looks to my mother and says, do you know how to do that? She goes, no, I'm going to the library right now to get a book on how to orchestrate. You know, that really. I love that. That's such a great thing. Let's just stop right there. That's one of the keys to life. Yeah. Just say yes. And then just go figure it out. Well, sometimes I have this. One of my sons and I have this ongoing thing because we both went to Blackbird Academy. I wanted to ask you about that too. That's on my list. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Okay. Yeah. My son graduated from Blackbird Academy, I guess a year and a half before me and then was in LA helping me, you know, set up a patch bay in my backyard studio, a little studio, not as nice as your digs here. Um, But it got the job done. And he said, Mom, I'm telling you, if you went to Blackbird, it would change your life. You would appreciate everything musically that you're doing 10 times more for the rest of your life. And at that moment, I thought, no, that's never going to happen. Like, when do I have six months to stop my life and, you know, attend school? I had absolutely no plans, but I was traveling in the summer with his younger brother. And at his suggestion, he said, why don't you take my brother for the one week high school course. So I came to Nashville. I thought while he is taking the summer camp for a week, I'll just book some co-writing sessions and hang out and be mom. And Mark Rubel, who's Elijah's teacher for the older class, you know, the Mm -hmm. after you graduate high school class, uh, said, yeah, come in, sit in any time. So I found myself sitting in the class and then I'd have to leave to go do a co-write. And I just started to feel like, I'd, I don't want to leave. <laughs> and I started canceling my co-writes. And one day I just marched upstairs and I said, can I enroll? You know, everybody in the class was mostly 18. Um, you know, some in their early 30s. Probably 18-year-old dudes too, right? Were there girls in the class? One other girl. Okay. And, and, and that's something we should talk about too. But yeah, so... And I was told, well, you'll need your high school transcripts. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> what rock are they buried under? And That's funny to me. I'm sorry. Like, and and contacted hell? my high school. And lo and behold, they had them. And I, you know, and bless my family. They let me stay here. You know, I sent my son home <laughs> to his dad, um, who also, you know, was one of the guests that we Skyped in the class um, it, it was crazy. So, yeah, I stayed and I just stayed in the class for s- six months and got my 
I got my certification. And did you, so you just you just kind of loved it. You you thought I loved it. That's I so loved great. it. And it I got to say it's it's hard after you've been an adult and you have your own life and especially if you don't work for someone and you you know do projects and you make your own time to suddenly like you have to show up every day at right. a certain time and you have to do the reading and you have to turn in the test and you have to memorize the microphones and the compressors and the equalizers and the patch bays. And then you have a final and, you know, things like going into the studio to do your own project you do on the weekends and field trips on the weekends. So I, I had no time to do any of the things I was doing before I went to school. It's like my entire life just went on hold while I went to school. And, and so it's kind of been this catch up ever since. How, um, how do you think that experience has affected your process of being a writer and a performer? Is it changed how you record or does it make you pay attention to different things or? You know, I would say mostly the biggest takeaway for me, and, and this is the brilliant thing about the school and all the mentors there and Mark Rubel is I always thought that engineering was technical and yes, you need to know things. You need to understand signal flow and you, you need to understand, you know, electricity certainly. So you don't blow anything up. But I found that it's really about people. Recording is about people and it gave me so much confidence because I have been plugging things in and recording myself my entire life right. and apologizing for it, telling the people, particularly the males, the male friends and mentors, well, here, here's how I record it. I didn't really do it right, you know, and apologizing for right. it. And now I know I was doing it right. I was doing oh, it right great. because that's what you do. You, you get a sound yeah. You know, you make something worth recording yeah. and you put a mic in front of it and you try not to distort it by accident, you know, unless, unless right, you're doing unless it on purpose. purpose. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, try not to make it noisy with like, you know, plug in clicks. And yeah. Um, and I, I always thought, oh, yeah, my gear's not good enough, you know. And I listened to these old demos I did on tape and they just sound cool. And yeah. You know, people go out of their way to try to sound like that now. Absolutely. And it's part of the whole package. I want to talk about this because I think it's important. Um, I hope Blackbird Academy does get more females because I think women make incredible records and, and I think we need more of them. Yeah, we definitely do. And it's not because they're not letting women in. It's because women aren't applying. Right. So it's it's, you know, that's... It's not that there's a glass ceiling. It's that women don't feel like it's a career they're particularly drawn to or maybe don't understand. But let me go back to something I said earlier about the song has an intelligence to it. What I find in recording, and I find this with me with a writer, like, for example, people say, have you ever written with your parents? Well, I have written with both my parents separately. Um, and when I write with my mother, it's hard to write with her because I feel like I don't need to be in the room because she has such a 
oh, it needs to go here and it needs to go there. And we go about what we come up with differently. And she loves what I do. She sometimes marvels at the chord changes and goes, whoa, like that's amazing. And, um, but I write in a, in a kind of deeply intuitive way. And I need, like you talked about your friend who said, it's like the radio playing in the other room very quietly and you have to listen mm -hmm. so you can write down what it's saying. That, that's how I do everything. That's how I basically record, write, produce, mix, you know, edit videos. It's, it's all got to go through, you know, this whatever it is that kind of measures truth, you know. And mm -hmm. if it feels, um, if there's something that I don't believe, I, can't, I just have to stop and I have to be real quiet and listen and go, what about this? is moving me and what about this is irritating the belief, you know? It can be a word, you know, a word in a song, a lyric, where just like one word is ill-chosen and it, it interrupts my belief of the person singing. Mm -hmm. It rubs you when it, it goes It rubs by. me the wrong way and yeah. I got to kind of like meditate on it and going, yeah. mm, that could be better. Yeah. You know? I think most writers are more instinctual about what you're talking about. You're very analytical about it, about how what that process is. Mm -hmm. Mo I think most. I think that's interesting. Let's keep talking about that. So you, you're looking at it from like what rings true. Yeah, I'll give an example. So on the last on the record coming out, there's one song that was a half finished song which I, I rarely take half-finished songs and record them anymore. I used to do tracks when I was younger and then try to write lyrics over it. And I, and I found that the more developed something was before it had a melody and a lyric, the harder and more intimidating it was to write to. I mean, people do that all the time. Yeah, but I'm with you. It, 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 it's, it's hard. Because you really, to me, if you're going to build a castle... Like, you need to know who's going to live in it first. If you build the castle and then you try to, like, you fit know. Fit a family in there. <laughs> fit a family afterwards. Like, this is a family of seven, and they're the right family, but we're going to have to get rid of one of them. Yeah. To get them all in. I agree. That's a great analogy. I'm keeping that one. That's a good analogy. <laughs> That's a keeper. That's a keeper. So I did the thing that is completely against everything that I just said, which is I had this half-finished song with me just mumbling on it. And I had an arrangement, and it was a cool track. It was kind of John Lennon-y. And um, when I went to Dave Way, who I produced the record with, who's, you know, he's, he's so out, um, credits me in production and engineering. He's, you know, won four Grammys and has made a lot of amazing records. Uh, anyway, he was listening to all the songs I had in my Dropbox folder from, you know, things that I'd written over the years. And I had this idea, and he really liked it. And so we were deciding what songs to give to Van Dyke Parks, and that was one of them. Well, for arrangement? Yeah, so Van Dyke Parks... Are you kidding me? Really? Yeah. Van Dyke Parks Lord. arranged this song that had a title and me mumbling on it. And Van Dyke kept calling me and saying, Louise, it would be really nice if you could send the lyrics so I know what the song is about. And I go, I know, I know, I'm trying, I swear I'm trying, but I just don't believe anything I say yet. And that was a problem. I kept trying to write it. And then in the end, 
the thing that I most did not want. We were in Village Recording Studios with a 25-piece orchestra and four cameras and Van Dyke conducting and no lyric to the song with me. Wow. And I had to write the lyric after the entire song was, you know, orchestrated, recorded. It came out great. I love the way it came out and the lyric totally fits and... I have done it before. I have pulled off writing a lyric to something that's complete before. It is my least favorite way to write, but I have done it, and yeah. it's something. It's I a lot put. of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And I, lo- I want to go back to one thing you said. Van Dyke Parks, what I love is that he asked to do that. I mean, you would technically think an arranger is really dealing with a sonic landscape mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know, he's not really, that's not his area, but that guy's one of the best uh, arrangers of all time worked on. We, I, we could go forever what he's done, but for him to say, I need that lyric to know how to do this. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's, that's probably a key to why he's so good at what he does. Well, Van Dyke is a of, songwriter. Yeah. Okay. And he's a very, um, he has an amazing, I, his use of the English language is like his vocabulary musically, like the words he uses to describe things, the emails he writes. He is just amazing, you know? And so words are hugely important now, and, and musical. Yeah, now, and I could be wrong, but I think he did some of the classic Beach Boy well, stuff. Well, he did, yeah. And he also did a record with Brian Wilson as well. You can mm-hmm. you can get all this down. Um, yeah. I actually did an interview with Van Dyke Parks for a podcast I did with Paul Zolo. Okay. A great song adventure. He was our first interview. Oh, fantastic. And, and what Van Dyke talks about is he doesn't want to add anything. He wants to, he does something he calls a takedown, where he just listens to what's already there. And he takes down musically what's there, and then he'll make notes of where he could accentuate or support something that's already happening or accent something that's already happening. But his goal is not to add anything. It's not to put a stamp on something. But um, he, yeah, what he wants to do is, is support and express what is built into the song the song he's serving yeah. the song serving the song which is i'm I'm going to go listen to that um he's one of my favorites there's a guy david campbell david Be- campbell he's another he, great one he now did the he string has, arrangements on my debut record really okay yeah. he has a little more of a signature and he is an incredible arranger too so he did your first record yes he did wow yeah i've had some amazing arrangers um Paul Buckmaster, who passed away recently, did two arrangements on my record, Bad Little Animals, that are just fantastic. There's a, you know, people, one of their favorite songs of mine, even my kids, they go, that's your best song. (laughs) Isn't it funny how your kids are? They'll tell you the truth, But they've said that about several songs now, so I'm like, okay, I'm doing good. Which one are they saying? Um, They love uh, a song called Archives which I played in Hyde Park um, in 2016 when I played live. And uh, 
it's it's a really cool song and yeah paul buckmaster did the arrangement to that he also did an arrangement to a song called stars and airplanes on that same record i'm gonna check them both out is there a is there a live version of the uh, hyde park thing there is it's on youtube yeah i figured i'm going to watch that when we're done now and i now you're bringing me something else i saw in your bio you lived in the uk for 10 years right i did (laughs) this is funny because i thought about this with the whole blackbird thing because when i went to london it was with a 10-day round trip ticket when I came to Nashville this last time, it was a 10-day round-trip ticket, and I stayed and <laughs> went yeah. to school. Um, I was like, I, well, I don't know. I'm not staying 10 years. I got a kid, you know. Um, but, yeah, I went there for 10 days, and I stayed for 10 years. I went for 10 days. It was before Christmas when I was supposed to come back. My boyfriend and I were having problems, and I had this just great opportunity with (laughs) I was uh being courted and then signed with stiff records okay you know and they had it they had Tracy Ullman and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and love those records you know I think Jake signed they were were big time big time Elvis Costello well I think Jake I think I read that Jake discovered Elvis but I don't know I don't Uh, know did you love the uh I'm digressing but I was obsessed with the early Elvis Costello records. Uh, yeah, totally. I Amazing. Mean, obsessed. Allison. I mean, yeah. I kind of got lost on him later. Oh, he's still brilliant. Yeah, he is. And, and actually, I admire it. They just refuse to, to stay in one place. They're just growing as artists. Well, and, as, and as right they should. As right they should. And you just have such a sentimentality about where they were at one particular time at your life, too. And well, you love it. That's the key. And man, it is it is beautiful because why would they stay? Why would they stay where they were? They shouldn't. No, it's it's nobody. It's like playing on tour. Like when I went, I toured with Tears for Fears. It was like this big dream of mine to be a, you know, be a rock guitarist in a band because in the same way as like there's not a lot of women in engineering, I thought there needs to be more women playing guitar. Yeah. And when I got this gig to do this world tour, in the nineties, um, it was great until it wasn't (laughs) until it was like, wait a minute, I'm not growing. I'm playing the same show every night. I have a dog and a boyfriend in Laurel Canyon at home who I'd never get to see. And what am I, you know, right. I, this is the thing they pay you for the, the moment you're on stage, but they don't pay you for all the life that you're not living in between that. Yeah. And so touring can really take you away from growing as an artist because it's really about playing what the people want and maybe what the people want is something you did a long time ago and yeah, you know, you're not risking the new. And Yeah, I think a lot of artists that are, you know, have really stayed active get into that. You mm-hmm. know, trying to, you know, people buy tickets, they get babysitters, they come out to see Journey, you know, you got to play Don't Stop Believing." I mean, it's just going to be crazy if you don't. You know what I mean? It's a balance that has to be struck. Yeah, it's a balance. I mean, really what people want when they go to a show is they don't want you. They want themselves. So That is the key. They, Preach if, it, sister. If you go to a show, you want to hear the songs that remind you of who you were when you heard those songs. And yep. if somebody doesn't give that to you... They, it's almost like a reintroduction. It's like, oh, well, who's this song or who are you or what are you doing now? It's right. like 
you got to meet meet the older version. I don't even like the word older, but the newer version of who that artist is. And, you know, without having a chance to live with the new music and get to know it and incorporate it in your own life as an audience, sometimes it's hard to connect with if you only get new material. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch List. We'll now take a short break to enjoy Louise's performance of Made to be Good, written by Louise Goffin and Billy Harvey. Let's make a good story to tell I'll show you the sad farewells the end is not coming soon let's make a different kind of day suspending our doubts and cares love is Somebody's there Everywhere you reach Everywhere you go Everything you touch All you know Is made to be good I see you as you are My story tells me so What hasn't happened yet I don't need to know It's made to be Everyone wins 
I have another real question for you. Okay. I diverted there, but you're fun to talk to. Your first gig, this is amazing to me. Where, okay, was it Troubadour you played your first gig? Or no? Yeah, Okay. it was. Tell me what your first wait, gig wait, was. Wait, okay, I think there was this, actually well, in truth, there was a, my mother, my mother, Carol King, was playing UCLA Royce Hall when I was 16, and I did come on stage okay. and play one of my songs, and then she sat next to me and kind of tinkled some piano along mm. with my song. But it was first, really embarrassing. It was a nature song. It was like, I think about a redwood tree. <laughs> well, you were 16. Yeah. I bet it was sweet. I think I, I have it. I think I have a cassette recording of it somewhere. I have so much I need to archive. It's insane. I have, I have so many cassettes. I recorded everything. I have cassettes. I have multi-tracks that need to be baked. I have a tape with Jeff Picaro from Toto, the drummer, playing yep. on it. Um, you know, in a multi-track sitting in my closet from when I was 21. So now we were just talking that you, that you, you played with your mom one song, but as an artist, your, it says your first gig was opening for Jackson Brown. That's true. I'll tell you. That's crazy. I'll tell you the story. That's crazy. Well, yeah. And also at the time I was a 17 year old girl and, and you know, Everybody was crushing on Jackson Brown, you know. So um, I think they still are. Yeah, um, and he was—he's always been really generous. I mean, I met him first, you know, through my mom. I guess he came over a couple of times. I don't even remember this. I heard him tell this story, and I was like, I—I I don't remember any of this. But um, so I, I remember my mother moved to Idaho. I was 17. I stayed in Los Angeles to finish high school because I didn't want to go to Idaho with her. And there was no electricity and running water where she was staying. And I made the record company my kind of surrogate parents because I got a record deal when I was 17. And that paid for me to live on my own while I drove myself to high school. <laughs> and um, my mom, I think, writes about this in her book, you know, she felt like, well, my dad lived in LA, so it, it was okay. But I was living on my own in a house with three kittens, literally. <laughs> Their names were Blanca, Persephone, and Neptune. Those were the names of my three kittens. And I had a piano and I was up over Laurel Canyon Boulevard on a house, like a little, you know, house with a piano and stilts. It was literally hanging over Laurel Canyon Boulevard. And I remember at the time, I was 17 and I was sitting in my front room and my boyfriend was sitting at the table with me and I got a call and it's Jackson saying, hey, I'm playing a show at the Troubadour and I just thought it might you might want to open for me. And I was like, uh, I hadn't put my record out yet. My record company wouldn't let me release my record very cool of them they said you were not ready you can't release your record until you graduate high school so um I didn't have the record to release and I was still in high school but Jackson said and and I said 
I can't. I'm I'm not ready yet. I was too stage shy. So I said no and hung up. And and then I told my boyfriend, yeah, that was Jackson Brown. He asked me to open for him at the Troubadour and I said no. And he was like, what? What? You said no? And he said, call him back right now. Um, I said, really? He said, call him back right now and say yes. So that's really what happened. I mean, I was terrified. Um, but I did. I did. I called him back and I did open. But also, and I can understand, anybody could understand you being terrified. Plus you were 17. Um, but it's a good match for you. It was a great crowd for me. I mean, okay, let's go back to your thing of you got to always say yes. We never finished this conversation. So at Blackbird, that's what they say. That's what they say to the students. That's what they said to my son. That's what my son's father always tells students, you know, Greg, Greg always says, you got to say yes to everything. And, and, you know, sometimes you don't say yes to everything. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, sometimes you don't say yes. No, you're right. For example, if you're not ready, you know, things have to be ready, but sometimes you are not the best judge of whether you are ready because as people and artists, we are never ready for anything. We never feel ready. Right. Um, but there's been a couple of times where I've booked a gig and realized that I'm about to play a show that I'm not prepared to play. You know, where you just like, it's the worst feeling ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or those times where you're like sick and you didn't cancel the show and you go, I'm going to play the show anyway. And you're just like, okay, come on. We're going to get through this. You know, you're going to steam up. You're going to get the lozenges. You're going to get through this. And then, you know, people collapse afterwards and they get sick and they don't know how sick they are. And sometimes you got to say no. Yeah. Not say yes to everything. So, um, but in that case, it was a cool thing. And Jackson throughout the years has, you know, he's been a, a friend um, who's been super generous with me as an artist. Uh, you know, he had a downtown studio and um, where I made some recordings when I was 21, which are the multi-tracks I have to bake. Um, and, you know, recently, uh, not so recently, but in the scheme of things recently, when my dad died in 2014, I had just put out a record, but immediately wanted to make an, a tribute EP and got some incredible musicians and uh, like Jim Keltner on drums and Bobby Glob on bass and um, wanted to make this record and just needed a day of studio time and Jackson was able to give that to me to make this tribute EP that day. Yeah, and he's he's always been great. Um, the thing about Jackson Brown that comes out often when songwriters around here talk how young he was when he wrote some of those songs well everybody was young when they wrote those songs i mean all the songs that we love yeah they, i guess you're right everybody was yeah. young the i mean the beatles were done at 29 yeah i mean actually i have a song i wrote with my dad when i was 21 i remember we pitched it to linda ronstadt she didn't do it and i did it on recorded it for the first time on the tribute record i made for my dad. It's called Apple on Fire. Um, I also unearthed some <laughs> buried demo of a song my mother and 
my father had written together and he was singing lead vocal on the demo, which never happened because he wasn't a, really a singer. And she was singing harmony. And I only discovered it the day he died when someone posted it on YouTube. So I recorded a duet with Joseph Arthur of that song. But there was one song I wrote with my father when I was 21. We pitched it to a few artists. It was a ballad, so nobody wanted a ballad then. And it just sat in a can forever. Sat around forever. And I always wanted to be, you know, edgy and play guitar and play rock music. And this was just too ballady, you mm-hmm. know, thoughtful song. And then when I got the song out and recorded it, I was like, how did I write this when I was 21? Like, yeah. it's such a sophisticated, deep, incredible song. And I wrote it so long ago. And I wrote it, you know, my dad came over. My dad was funny. Like, he was he was frustrated as a musician. He needed people who could play the piano to write with, especially when he and my mom weren't together anymore. They wrote occasionally, but... Was he heavier on the lyric side? Totally. Okay. Totally. I, I was going to ask you, that's great. I was going to ask you that. He I was a know. spiral notebook and a pencil okay. guy. So he worked with people that played and sang. He was like a classic lyricist, but he would coach whoever was writing the melody, like, go up, you know? Yeah. My mother was, you know, he could never find anyone who could do what she could do. Um because, you know, she was writing simpler, not so sophisticated melodies before him. And even though he couldn't write melodies, he could guide her. And she had the ears and the musicality to go in those places. But anyway, we were writing. And uh, well, what happened is he came over to where I was living. And he's got, I got this idea for a song. And I'm like, okay. He said, you want to write? And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Sat at the piano. He sits down. He's got a lyric. And he's, you know, every line is measured. And and, I mean, it's the song, by the way, if you want to hear it, it's on, it's on, you know, whatever. What's what's the title? It's called I'm Not Rich, But I'm Not Poor. Okay. And he used to, he said to me, yeah, there's this thing my father used to say to me when I was growing up. We're not rich, but we're not poor. Meaning, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean to you? I don't know. But he was saying that it means that even though we don't have money, Mm -hmm. you know, we are not poorly in our, in our spirit. Um, It's, it's, it's subtle. Yeah. It's nuanced as so a title. So now I'm hearing you do your, your father's accent. So he's he was a New York guy. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And your mom's from New York, right? Or yeah. they lived there. I don't know if she yeah. was originally from They there. met at Queens College. Yeah. Now did you grow up did you were, did you ever live in New York or were you LA the whole were you born in LA? I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. And when did you move to LA? Um well between between you? Brooklyn and LA there was West Orange, New Jersey, oh, okay. where there was a lot of songs written. Was it more, did you move out to the suburbs? Is we moved the... to the suburbs when okay. I was two okay. because they had started to have some success and we had a suburban house. And I actually visited the house a few years ago because I was on tour and I realized, oh my God, I'm like, I'm driving a mile away from like the neighborhood I used to live in. And he's like, we got to go by there. And we did, and the owner of the house was raking in front of the house, and I got out of the car and I said, hey, I used to live here. He goes, no, I knew some songwriters. I know all about the songwriters who lived here. You want to come in? (laughs) And then I came in and saw this house that I'd grown up in, and 
it was how was that? It was amazing. He was so gracious and so nice. We went through all the rooms. There was some completely original things. Like my dad in that house had um, studio fader lights, the, mm-hmm. the, the ones that you turn. Yeah, you know? keep them from buzzing on. Yeah, the, those yeah. those were still in. The first thing I noticed is, because like, we used to all go in my parents' bedroom and watch TV in their room. Like mm-hmm. the TV was the smallest yeah, they, you know the built-in space was still there. I think it was like a twenty-inch, yeah. twenty-two-inch, and we yeah. used to all like you know, sure. watch whatever was and on. Your mom would be like, "Get back! Don't sit too close to the TV. You're going to ruin your eyes." <laughs> right, and um, a lot of things were there. I'll tell you what was still there is um, <laughs> this is a funny story. I didn't even know it till after this happened, but the doorbell plays "Will You Love Me Tomorrow," really and still does, and so. I took, we took all these pictures, you know, like. So the owner of the house now must have just loved this because you could fill him in on, I'm sure he had a million questions. Well, he did. He had a magazine um, about New Jersey and there were pictures of my parents and me as a baby in it. So um, he, yeah, he knew. And it, it just felt like, like, you know, I have photographs of me as a child, like the first time I wrote my name on a chalkboard sitting on stairs, and there were the stairs still there. Well, the story with the doorbell that I didn't learn until my mom came to visit, and I said, you know, I went to the house, and I have all these pictures, and I'm showing her these videos. She goes, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I said, so what was the deal? Did you, like, have a designer doorbell made? And she goes, no, got a regular doorbell, but I realized the notes were exactly the same as will you love me tomorrow, but in the wrong order. So I switched the little switches on the notes. You are kidding me. That wow, is, that's amazing. That's badass. That is badass. You know, because if you get the doorbells, they go like ding, ding, yeah. ding, ding. And you she know? just rearranged them. Ding, 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 ding. You know, I think she said it was like one missing note or something. But Wow, that that actually to me says a lot about her, um, her not her personality, but her abilities well you know she's, what I mean? she's just like that's that's really she's analytical cl- that's really and clever. mathematical yeah, and yeah. Sci- yeah yeah and likes to figure yeah. out things yeah she does a lot of things well i do too well, <laughs> well, that, well you know what that, that, that was I, I, hang I on, do let a lot me, of things well let too. me let me go there because that's exactly <laughs> what i thought um growing up in the family you grew up with has some advantages of being in the music business but at the same time you know I can imagine. I know how my kids are, and they want to do their own thing, right? They want to. They want to be their own person, and uh, yeah, it's taken me a long time. It really. I, I made this. I've been making records a long time, and been pretty. You know, uh, I don't know. It's just. I still get like stage fright when I go on stage about singing. I still have these. My dad used to be pretty critical. He was, I mean, I even have this recording. He was a very taskmaster um, critique. And it was it was all projection because he was that way about himself. Right. You know, he was kind of hard on himself. Like he literally... I mean, it's hard for people to believe this, but even up until he died, he was like, you think Will You Love Me Tomorrow is a good song? I'd be like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Dad, 
Have a yeah, seat. Yeah, that's a pretty good Let one. Let me explain to you. <laughs> he said, yeah, but it ain't like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. And I'd say, look, look, hold on. Okay, take a seat, Dad, you know. <laughs> Relax. Take a breath here. You know, I'm sure Bob r- wishes he wrote Will You Love Me Tomorrow. You know, they're different songs. Yeah, there's totally different things. But, but and he, in each, in yeah. each, really, they're, they're both high difficulty level. It's only hard to do if you're looking from the outside in. Like if you go back to what I said about the song being more intelligent, yeah. you know, if you're in the moment where you're given the gift of this song wanting to be written and, mm-hmm. you know, the best thing you can do is serve the song and get out of the way. Yes. And it, it, it's kind of like Buddhism in a way. Like the one thing about Buddhism is it doesn't say, don't worship me, the Buddha, you know, I'm just here to represent you know, it's you, it's inside of you. Right. And, and, and I'm not preaching a religion or anything here, but the idea that if we constantly are thinking of what it is we want to achieve is something outside us. Yes, it's hard. If you're trying to write like a Rolling Stone, you're looking from the outside in, it's hard. But if you're Bob Dylan in the moment that that song is coming to you and you're being given the gift of hearing that little quiet radio in the next room and transcribing it and writing what you hear, you know, it's, you are brilliant, yes, but the song is also guiding you. And so, you know, what I find myself reminding people all the time is that you're the shit, you know? If you keep looking at all these other places to get what it is you want, if you put your life on hold because you think now that you found someone who's going to, sync your songs, you know, get you syncs in TV and film, that suddenly that's going to be the thing, you know, and you got it all wrong. Like right now, take the thing that's most disturbing you and sit down and write about that and amplify the thing that you think is most wrong with you and put that in a song. And, And then you're, you're in the driver's seat of your life rather than I'm going to go meet with this person and chase this thing and you know, get this record deal and find a manager. Louise, that is such great advice. And if you look, it really is. If you look at the artists today that are two, two examples you've used, Billie Eilish and Taylor Swift, they are in the driver's seats. They're talking about their thing. Even Taylor, when she was young, it's all about what's happening to her. She's, she's interfacing with the world based on what's happening to her. And everyone else can plug into that because it's real. Yeah. And when by it's so counterintuitive by really just focusing on who you are and what you're going through, it's the most universal because like a lot of people will be doing the same thing. And another thing you said that's so great is we all listen to everything on the in the context. And this is for movies, books, any any type of art. I think we we experience it in the context of ourselves. It's like George Lucas was saying about all the Star Wars movies he said there's only one story in life and that's a family story like when it comes down to it we're all like just dealing with our mothers our fathers our upbringing our you know it's like it's it's so even though star wars is about like going out and conquering and Mm -hmm. you know it's all that it's still about it's about people right and then the other one is the joseph campbell theory that that the hero's journey love that but again that's the audience relates themselves going through their struggle it, my grandmother was a uh, a playwright um she was more in the theater world mm-hmm. um and 
she, your, is this your your mother's my mother's mother? my okay. mother's mother who uh, died at ninety four. She um, yeah she was a very progressive woman ahead of her time, and you know she would tell my parents, but she'd also tell me that if you want to be universal when you write, be more detailed. Which it seems counterintuitive because yep. when I was younger, I think, well, if I want to appeal to more people, I'll be more general because that will appeal to a greater number of people. But she would say that the more detailed you are, the more you will appeal to people because everyone's life is filled with those same details. Right. Specific is the most universal. That's right. There it is. That's the same thing you're saying. That's exactly what my grandmother And was I think saying, it's yeah. a good writing note, you know. Yeah. You also have a charity or no, you've got several, but one I'm interested in is the you do songwriting for girls. Well, I, I have a 501c3, um, the Goffin and King Foundation, which is brand new. And we are doing songwriting retreats, um, which are getting up and coming people, people who may not have the means to attend these things, may not have any notable credits yet, um, you know, fresh out of college or wherever they are, and uh, writing with seasoned songwriters. Oh, that's and, great. And, and then, you know, it's an opportunity to, you know, get, you know, network, get exposure to writing with people who have done it more, and then we do shows, you know, perform the songs right when they're new, and um, we're we're talking about going to different places to do this and and work with local musicians in different areas. That's fantastic. Yeah, and 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 the Goffin and King part of it is that I'm using the legacy of their songs and the level of excellence as as a bar, you know, to reach for. Um, that's really because I grew up with songwriting parents and I feel like sometimes what happens is it becomes too much about the business, too much about the accolades. And I want to get back into just what it is to write a great song. Right. Um, although we will have panels where I think it's really important for people to be educated, particularly about copyrights and publishing because it has gotten very um, confusing and, yep. You know, it and, is confusing, and it's a change. It? It's a changing terrain, and um, you know, a lot of times there's money sitting around that people don't know that's there for them, and they don't yep. know how to get it because they don't even know it's there. And you know, I mean, I've been in the business a long time, and I, I'm still, I still don't get it. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure it out. And so, I think we all really need to learn that. Um, and. Yeah, we so we'll do that. Th I think that's really important too because mm -hmm. um, kids coming up today, there is this sort of idea that music's free. Well, because I have sons, um, and they're both musical. My understanding is that the fact that music is free for that generation isn't a problem or a challenge. It's part of the accepted way things are. The, the idea is I've made this thing and I'm going to immediately put it on SoundCloud and share it with you. And there's a new currency that isn't about getting paid. It's about followers. It's about engagement. So really, if... That's so good. 
If yeah, that's great. If you, that's right. There is a new currency. Yeah. So it like worrying about getting paid is it's like it automatically makes you sound like an old person. I'm not saying you, but if people start, you know, uh, complaining about the fact that it isn't the way it used to be and you don't get paid and you're doing all this work and you're not getting paid enough money for it. It immediately dates you because that's an old person's concern because the generation that's out now didn't ever know that. So they're just accepting the way it is, which is, oh, wait, the currency is popularity. And if you think about it, that's a pretty great, that's a pretty good amen to your record. Like how many, (laughs) okay, okay, Dana, who is the editor of this podcast. She's a badass artist. She is a badass artist. So she's got 100,000 organic streams and she just got out of Belmont and made put out a single. So yeah, that's winning. Right. That's winning. You go get a job and get paid doing something else to support your art and you know you're doing your art well if you get a lot of streams and a lot of likes and a lot of engagement. That's it. If you're expecting to get paid, go home, you know, because that's... That's not how it works anymore. It's not how it works anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I am not saying that no, all I, I, people the, are right. getting paid. Yes, they are. And the songwriters who are doing a lot of work, like NSAI, is, am I saying it right? Yes. And, and Sona and they're amazing and everything they're doing is right and they need to keep doing it because it is wrong undervalued underpaid it's it's not cool it's not okay so i'm not saying that it's okay but i am saying that the the way that the culture is is the currency is different now i mean for me as an artist to survive it's always a question of how do i make it work with what it is now and and the answer is it's really you get the music out there I mean it used to be like oh it'd be so great to get paid for the music now it's like it'd be so good for somebody to even spend 20 seconds of their time of the day to listen to something I've made you know because we're all inundated with so much stuff so attention is the payment. If you get someone's attention, that is the new payment. Wow. That's such a great thought. So you know what? I'm going to wrap it up so we can get you to play us a song. Okay. Um, really great to talk to you, Louise. Yeah, this is I mean, I think you've had, uh, I really, really, you've, you've turned me around on a couple of things. You have excellent, I mean, you have fantastic perspective on things. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for so, having me to this lovely Wow. I mean, when I drove up, I was like, yay, this place is so cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on Pitch List, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch List. To hear songs written and or recorded by today's guest, check out this week's playlist by finding us on Spotify at Pitch List Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. To watch the song performances from this episode, visit PitchListPodcast.com or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.